From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the weekly internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Carl Franklin introducing show number eight with guest Brian Komar, recorded May 10th, 2007. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, offering professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. Hey, this is Richard Campbell, and you're listening to Run As Radio. And with me, my co-host, Greg Hughes. Hello, everybody. Hi, Richard. How are you doing, man? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? Well, we're all West Coast here, so it can't be anything but good this time of year. That's right. You know, it, and this time of year is, uh, is, is the time of year to be where I'm at in Portland, Oregon, um, as opposed to the other time of the year. Which would be winter. Right. We have, we have two seasons here. They say pretty much it's a uh, rain and construction. <laughs> and uh, everybody has their favorite. I got an email. Cool. Let's let me read it to you. Okay. Hi, guys. Thanks for the great new podcast. I'll be paying attention to this one. I'm in a small office where we are very much data-driven, and we have lots of big, important data files. We have 500 megabyte access files, SPSS files, and about 40 gigs of SQL Server databases that all need to be backed up. 500 meg access files. Uh, that scares me. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, though. <laughs> it's true. And it goes on to say, not large by the standards you might be talking about, but large enough to make backups painful. Uh, it does. I was interested in the comments about disk-based backup versus tape backup. We're discussing out options right now, and of course, this is one of the questions we have to answer. Like you, I think the time for disk-based backup has finally come, but I'm having trouble finding material that backs me up. No, no pun intended. No pun intended, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Do any of you have any references that outline the benefits of disk versus tape or the benefits of tape versus disk? Also, can you find examples of companies that have successfully made the switch to disk-based backup? Backup uh. is not the best area to be an early adopter. So I need to show that disk-based backup is beyond the early adopter stage. I'm looking for you to back up your comments about backup. <laughs> Looking forward to more IT podcasts. I think you've found a neglected niche, if a niche can be huge. Good luck, Scott Stonehouse. Yep, and of course, IT professionals um, are, love to explain how neglected they are. That's what we do, right? So, <laughs> just kidding. And, and of course, the IT credo, change is good, you go first. That's right. Who exactly. wants to be find out that backups didn't work? And you know, actually, um, you know, the IT organizations that I've run and worked in have always been... Um, you know, a little beyond leading edge, quite often bleeding edge in some areas. Um, backup is an area that's always been really painful for people. Sure. But actually, um, we have done and have made the move to some disk-based backup, and we have some background in that area, and it might be something that's worth touching on for a show. Do you think we could do a whole show just on disk-based backup? Well, you know, I do. Um, it might be interesting to find out if what our listeners think. Yeah. Wait, do you want to hear a show on disk-based backup? Send us an email, info at runasradio.com. Yeah, we could do that. I, I imagine that I could probably find, I know a number of people who uh, who have expertise in that area. We could probably find somebody to come on and, and provide some real solid uh, backup information. Um, so yeah, let us know. Great. 
All right, let's introduce Brian Komar. Brian Komar is the president of Ident IT Incorporated and a security consultant specializing in public key infrastructure and identity lifestyle management engagements. He is the author of Microsoft Windows Server 2003 PKI and Certificate Security, published by Microsoft Press, and the co-author of the Windows Security Resource Kit with Ben Smith. He's also a Microsoft MVP in security for, I think, the past three years. Is that right, Brian? Yep, that is correct. And welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you, Brian. All right. I I got two security guys on the show today. I know I'm outnumbered. <laughs> Look out. So we were talking about EV certificates. So and and your comment here is great. Does anybody notice the green bar anyway? Mostly we notice when certs are bad. Right. Um Microsoft's gone a long way with IE7, and we're starting to see this as well with Firefox. The idea of trying to give better indications when there's a phishing site so that you know you're connecting to a bad site. Sure. Um, the whole idea is that a green bar means it's good. It's gotten these new extended validation or enhanced validation certificates, and a red bar means bad. Right. And EV certificates meaning extended validation certificates. Right. The The idea of extended validation is that they are going to limit who, first of all, can get the extended validation certificates. You you must be a corporate identity and you must have, I think it's $100,000 in annual sales each year to even qualify for an EV cert. And then they're really supposed to take measures to ensure that the person requesting the cert is a true representative of the organization requesting the certificate. Right, and then it's not some bad guy out there trying to get a certificate from my company in order to commit fraud, for example. Yeah, like, for example, somebody getting a code signing certificate for Microsoft. Like, that would ever happen. Right. Oh, there's a little sarcasm today. Yeah, that happened uh, three years ago, in fact. Really? Yes. Yes, it did. If you actually look, there is a non-trusted certificate store, and that certificate is one of the certificates in there. Yeah, don't trust this cert, and it's an interesting problem. I mean, the rea- I think we've, we're in a new place these days where it's not that big a deal to get a certificate of some kind. So now we're really talking about the legwork necessary to uh, really have an identity company identify someone before they give them the certificate. Well, this is my one problem with the EV certs, is that what they're promising to do is what they were supposed to do in the first place, and they charge you a premium for it. Right, right. And I, I think that's one of the major issues that some companies are facing today when they are looking at the decision to do EV certs. Um, one of the big things we've noticed is that people aren't noticing the green bar. They, they've done a really good job with the red bar now. You know, yeah. no more just a little dialogue popping up and saying, you know, this site may be bad. Do you want to continue? And the default option was yes. Now it's, you know, this is bad. The site doesn't match. The certificate is revoked. Can't determine the status of it. Right. And then says, you should close this website. Recommended. And that's the default option if somebody were just to click OK at that point. I think they've done a really good job on that end. The green bar, though, I it's kind of a, a twofold issue for me. One is we've got to advertise to people that the green bar means it's a good site, first of all. Uh, for example, the first commercial site that's using it today is PayPal.com. And I wonder how many of the listeners of the show actually realized or saw that it was a green bar when they went to PayPal and got that warm and fuzzy feeling. 
Yeah, did they actually feel good about it? Did they even know that that was a good thing that happened? Did they even notice that the bar was green? <laughs> we actually sent one of our employees to the website and asked them afterwards if they noticed that the bar was green, and they had not even noticed. So I think, I mean, we're talking about web server certificates and, and, and the interaction with the web browser. Before EV certificates, you know, the general instruction, and even it was a weak instruction and could have some real problems associated with it, was look for the little gold lock. Right. Yeah, and I, I took it further. I said click on the lock and look at the company that issued the certificate and, you know, ultimately at the root and you get a warm, fuzzy feeling about that company as well. Not to mention, look at the details of the certificate and make sure that there's actually any encryption at all taking place, because it is possible to get an SSL certificate and not have encryption. Yeah, they could say that there's no encryption on the site at that point as well. So, right. you know, and here's one of the other things that's happening, though, is if we make a big push that green is good, and let's say convince the employees of our companies, only put information when the website is green. Right. Well, a lot of companies today are deploying internal PKIs for internal use. So for their intranets, for internal code signing, EFS, 802.1x wireless networks, etc. Well, the thing is, those will never be green. Because to be, be an EV cert distributor, you have to put a specific object identifier into the certificate with a new extension, and you have to be included in the list of EV cert providers. So you, if you go down this path of convincing everybody, this is really good, this is really good, but when you go to your human resources website, white's okay too. Yeah, interesting problem that it, internal stuff is not going to have this. It's only going to be external. So now you have to give them awareness of where you're looking. Yeah, you know, it almost becomes now that people will have to start looking more and more at the you know the bottom bar of the browser, seeing what zone am I in for security. Uh, you know, what color is the bar? It, it's putting a lot of onus again on the user. I, I think it's a good intentioned idea. The idea of, you know, let's make sure that we're not selling certificates to the incorrect person. Yes. But all it's going to take is one company to screw up is doing this issuance. And if we hear of one case of somebody's being told, you know, um, we're sorry about the overbilling we did. Here, we'll give you EV certs instead. And they didn't actually do the full check of what they're supposed to do. It just totally devalues the whole lot of EV certs. Yeah, that would be a real problem. So who's handing out the authority to give out EV certs in the first place? Is that an ICANN function? Um, it's a combination. There, There's a committee that's been put together, and I'm not sure exactly where their jurisdiction comes from. But you've got VeriSign, you've got um, uh, CertaTrust, um, CyberTrust is in there, GeoTrust. So there's several companies that are taking part in this. And in fact, IE has actually jumped the gun because they still have not come up with a formalized solution yet. Right. So IE's turning green on what it thinks an EV cert's going to be. Well, it's the latest draft of the spec. You know, it, it will not be hard to change the behavior if the behavior changes in the spec. It would be an IE patch, which we're all unfortunately very familiar with. Getting them every Tuesday. <laughs> well, hopefully the first Tuesday of every month. <laughs> and I think it's reasonable to say that the Firefox team, the, that clan, is also working on and does intend to deploy support for the EV certs in the, in the near future as well. Yeah, I, I think, like as I said, I think in general the intent is great. 
But, you know, my whole thing comes down to it. Weren't these SSO companies supposed to be doing this in the first place? Yeah. I remember a day in the 90s where I was looking at getting an SSL cert and I needed a notary public and all those sorts of things done to be able to get the cert at all. Right. That all seems to have fallen by the wayside. Yeah. You know, it all comes down to policies, and, and that's a big part of any PKI deployment is the certification practice statement and the certificate policy, where you're saying what, me- you know, certificate policy, the definition is what measures did you take to identify the subject of the certificate before you issued them a certificate so I can base an assurance level on that certificate. So let's, let's, um, take, let's make an assumption, and it may be a bit of a, of a uh, optimistic assumption, but let's assume that the certificate issuers do follow the rules and they do the proper validation. If, if we accept that as a given, then where do we stand today with EV certs versus where we were before them? Well, I think people will have a more comfortable feeling as to when they go to an SSO website and they see it's green, they will feel much better about doing commerce on the Internet. I know what the problem is here. The problem is that most people don't feel bad about it right now. That's a pretty good point. I thought you were going to say most people are colorblind. Well, then, that would be, <laughs> why it have to be green? Isn't that the one they're not going to be able to see? Well, green, red, the usual. You know, <laughs> green, good, red, bad. Well, and there's, a, there's a, a, probably a reasonable question, which is, do I really need to be as well-trained about green, or should I be well-trained on red? You know, I think that's even more important that when it's an obvious attempt where something is wrong, I think, I think you're right, you hit around the nose, Greg, is we have to have more attention to red. Name does not match. Certificate is revoked. Um, not within its validity period. In fact, I wrote a whole white paper on revocation status checking for Microsoft. And it's, it's a major area for a lot of people to understand, but I think for the end user out there, you know, for our moms on the internet, I think this is the real important thing is that red is bad to close the window. And I think it's great that they're making the defaults abandoned. Yeah, walk away. Walk away. I, I agree. I think the improvement is definitely in that red flag zone and that um that the E V search the value that you get just in that one area is is pretty darn good. The question is how far away are we from being able to adjust the policy on our mom's computer so that no site that doesn't have a green SSL is going to work? Well, with IE today, they that's pretty much been the case. If you're running on Vista, Windows Vista with IE7, um, I'm actually answering a few questions on the public news groups about this because people are having problems with ClockSync, for example, and their dates are wrong on their computers and they're getting issues when they're connecting to these websites because the revocation list isn't within the current time frame. So they're getting the red bar when they shouldn't be. Because their machine's defaulting to 2000. Or something like that, yeah. So it's, you know, what they're getting is under the hood is the certificate is not yet valid. I think one of the other, um, one of the other important points about EV certificates, and you mentioned earlier what kinds of companies can get them now. And the average small business or non-corporate business doesn't really have that option available. And so, you know, where a lot of high profile, maybe first wave, um, big websites are able to, um, deploy EV certs, it's, it's not something that is extended to every business today. No, they, they, it really was excluding, um, individuals for purchase of the EV certs. 
Is that a good idea? Shouldn't anybody be able to buy this if they can produce the proof of of uh, relevance and of appropriateness? I think they wanted for the first draft of this, for the first round of this, to really limit it to corporations. Um, I'm just looking up on the definitions of it. And really, the big part was is that it's intended for corporations initially. Um, Typically, on, corporations that have a Duns and Bradstreet number is sort of seems to be the the. In other words, large enough to where they're they are have a high enough profile that you can actually do some validation and and put some right you know, put so some meat on the bone. A company set up in the middle of the night and getting a cert and doing business and then shutting down a week later. Yeah, right. Not, but I mean, a D and B. I immediately think they've got to be a publicly traded company. And I think quite often that 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 is the case. Um, you know, the the question is, is that the right thing to do? I think the vast majority of big businesses, and this is just my opinion, um, are are eligible to get the uh, to get the EV certs. And I guess the real question is, if you can do it for them now, isn't it time to do it, or do we need to wait and put a lot of complicated bureaucratic infrastructure in place and wait to even offer this until we can extend it to the smaller business? And I think the answer ultimately was no. There's a real need right now with some very large, high-profile corporate entities that are being defrauded or that are being fraudulently represented. There's a real need to get this capability out there now. And then in a second phase and maybe a third phase to roll that out and to make it available to some of the smaller companies and individuals. Yeah, and I think it'll actually take much more legwork to validate a smaller company. It's going to be much more of a process for the certificate providers. Yeah, and probably a much more manual process. Well, then, like you pointed out, the first, one of the very first sites to put EV certs in place is PayPal, which is one of the most fished sites in the world. And I think that's why they really felt they had to go to the EV certs. If you don't see a green bar when you're connecting to PayPal... You know it's a fake. Yeah. Absolutely. Or if you see a red bar when you think you're connecting to PayPal or to your bank or credit union or wherever it is, then certainly that red bar and the pop-up that says, hey, we don't think you really want to do this, is a, is a pretty powerful deterrent. I think another thing, too, that browsers are doing is they're blocking those windows that don't show title or URL bars anymore. They all show URL bars. Yes. So if somebody's trying to do something fancy by doing a pop-up window and trying to hide the bar so you don't know where they're going, you do now. You know, with IE7, you're getting that always for the part of the experience, which I think is important, too. And I just double-checked Amazon.com, and they're not a green bar. Actually, I've talked to one of the people over at Amazon, and they doubt that they will be. Interesting and they choice. they feel that the cost addition for EV certs would be cost prohibitive to their customers. How expensive are we talking here? Uh, what was the current pricing on them? It's ranging by provider, but they're at least double. So double being? In some cases, the current SSL price. How much is a current SSL? Uh, from a Verisign, it could be $250 per year. Oh, come so on. Maybe 500 How do you justify that? You know, well, if we, you're talking about a company that's got at least a, a certain level of sales, they're going to have a problem with $1,000 or $2,000 a year? Um, no, not for a single cert. They are talking thousands of certificates. Right. Every machine with its own cert. This is this is where it starts to come in. We're not talking about companies wanting to buy one certificate. If it was one certificate, I don't think these big companies would have an issue. 
I think I think again this is an area where you know this will happen in phases and as the EV certs become even more mainstream certainly they're available today in a standard or a proposed standard which will likely be ratified as it sits but as they become more mainstream and more adopted um you know as it is with any new product if you will that the rules and the prices and the availability does tend to change. Yeah, I think economies of scale will kick in in the next couple of years on them. You mentioned earlier you were talking about um, certificates and uh, validation on the intranet. That kind of raises for me the question of um, maybe like a PKI infrastructure um, inside of companies. What what can you tell us about that? Is that an important thing, or um, what, what do you see the value of that being? Well, I see a lot of value in it since that's what our primary consulting business is with our company. <laughs> well, there you go. Because <laughs> historically, it's been pretty difficult for companies to do it in a way that, that A, allows them to really leverage it, and B, provides a level of usability that doesn't, that isn't cost prohibitive. Exactly. I think what's happened previously is that a lot of the PKI solutions out there were very, very cost prohibitive to implement. Um, our company specializes in deploying the Microsoft PKI. And with the release of Windows Server 2003, a really good version of certificate services now is included in your license of Windows Server 2003. Right. And we have seen more and more applications that are driving companies to implement internal PKIs. You know, we, we affectionately call it the killer app, whatever that application may be. Um, many of our customers, this has been 802.1x wireless authentication. They've put in wireless networks and they're really concerned about the attack vector of the guy in the parking lot with the Pringles can connecting to their network. So what we found is for a lot of these internal use applications, it is a really, really good solution to deploy an internal PKI. For example, if for wireless, if we deploy an internal PKI, we can say that the certificates must be for client authentication, but they must chain to our internal root CA. Maybe even we'll put a custom object identifier into the certificates and say the certificate must include this object identifier. Sure. And this way, if somebody buys a certificate from VeriSign, from Thought, from GeoTrust, etc., they're not going to be included in our trust realm for our internal applications. We can designate which route we want to trust. Right. The only way that I can access and utilize this wireless network is if I have a machine certificate and an individual certificate which map against and maybe um, allow me a certain level, if any, access to a wireless network. Exactly. And, and then there's other applications like this, too, that we'd want to go to internal root CAs. Uh, for example, encrypting file system. If we want to start doing key archival and recovery and managing the certificates internally, EFS is another great example. Smart card logon. We're moving towards two-factor authentication. I want those issued by CAs that are only trusted within my organization. Now, there are applications, of course, that we do maybe want global acceptance of. Um, for example, server authentication certificates, the web server certs, code signing certificates, if we're developing any code that we want to sell to the public. Right. Um, the, the dangerous one, because nobody understands how they work, S-MIME email certificates. I always joke with it. You know, an S-MIME signing certificate, easiest certificate in the world to deploy. We can, we can buy them from a commercial provider so everybody recognizes it. You can sign your email, and everybody can validate your signature. 
But too often people think of the encryption certificate and they think, oh, I'll get an encryption email certificate and I can send encrypted email to anyone in the world, but they've got it backwards. Exactly. It, all an encrypted email certificate means is maybe, just maybe, you might be able to receive an encrypted email if somebody can get your certificate to do so. <laughs> that's all it means. Yeah, it's not. It, that's not what it was intended for. It's, yeah, you know, and that's the thing. Like, are, how are you going to do it as a company? Are you going to stand up an LDAP directory in the extranet that will do this? Um, are you going to have all of your users send signed emails and include the signing and encryption certificate to their targets? This is this is a big, big issue for SMI. So it is. It's a huge issue, and it's a big issue for many, many companies, and it's becoming more and more so, and it's really has been growing in size over time. So what's the answer? What is the answer to email security? And I ask that question a little bit tongue-in-cheek because, I mean, email uh, just is just really fairly blatantly an insecure medium for communication. So how do we solve this problem? Carrier pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> we can go back to real time, huh? Yeah. No. Um, Mail is terribly broken. A lot of companies, what they've been looking at is gateway solutions. If they know that we need to encrypt email, intelligent gateways. So if, if we need to send encrypted email from company A to company B, we can do gateway-to-gateway encryption to encrypt it as it's going across the public network. And we can set up rules that will take place at our gateway that will identify whether a signature is applied, whether encryption is applied. And then what you're doing is you're encrypting it to get it to that gateway. If you're really looking at pure control systems, in many ways rights management services are probably a better solution. Because if you think of it, with secure email, all you're doing is encrypting it to get it to that target's email inbox. There's no stopping them from decrypting the message and forwarding it to the public at that point. Sure. Yeah, I guess we're talking two different issues here. One is moving sensitive information via email, and the other is uh, effective identification of email sender and receiver. And yeah, I think and we're also talking about the safe and appropriate storage of information that may arrive in email. Yeah, it really comes down to it, what the way we approach it at many companies is we ask them what is their data security policies. You know, what and is, how how many of those companies say what? Uh, over half. <laughs> yeah. To that's, be really honest, at many times that's where we're starting the engagement. You're looking at um, things like what are your classes of data. Because if we can come up with a classification of data, then we can say, okay, how are you going to protect that data at creation, at store, in transit, at termination? And then you can start coming up with solutions. But the idea is write a policy that's not technology-specific so that as technology changes, you apply different technology, but you're still following the intent of the policy. I think quite often, a uh, little sidebar, but you know, when, when you speak to companies that, that put the, you know, their username and password and their highly sensitive information, uh, on the same, on the same classification or security classification level as their, uh, I don't know, their, their toilet paper roll replacement policy, um, you know, that's not very defensible when it comes time to, to go to court and to explain why it is that what this person did was really, really wrong. This is why many times we like working with military organizations or defense contractors. They they get security in a different level. And they get policies. Right. Serious about, about it. a policy, they will throw reams of policies at you. 
So what happens when you're dealing with more than one company? Let's say I have partners and I have customers out there and there's more and more um, pressure on IT departments to enable an organization to better collaborate and interoperate with partners and customers. But the security implications of that are potentially pretty huge. What what are some of the options that are available? We're talking about PKI. We're talking about certificates and whatnot. So in, in that general area, what's available to help me do a good job of of solving that problem? Well, I just did sessions at uh, the TechX conferences for pension publishing where we talked about interoperability. And one of my sessions was on this exact topic. What What you've got really are four different solutions that are available. And the solution that your company will select is really based on cost and requirements. But the first solution is simply buy certificates from a commercial provider. So if you have a small group of people and you need those certificates to be trusted globally, just buying certificates for those purposes, whether it be S-MIME, server authentication, code signing, and buy them from a commercial provider such as GeoTrust, uh, VeriSign, um, CyberTrust, the big thing you look at there, you know, their big promotion is we are covered, we have 99.5% of the browser market. Sure. So you're looking at that point X, you know, how much do you need for your company? But when you start getting into large numbers of certificates, now you've got to revisit that because it becomes cost prohibitive. So there's a couple of solutions out there. Um, many of the companies now have an offering that's what we like to title as root signing. What they will do is they will sell you a subordinate CA certificate, limit it for the purposes you are buying. So they may limit it for client and server authentication and email. They don't put, tend to put a, much of a limit on the price, by the way. Um, the limit, actually, they, the companies I've worked with have done this, have achieved huge cost savings when they look at the numbers. Okay. Because what they're looking at is, Rather than paying, let's say, $25 per certificate for 2,000 users, they end up getting it at about 50% of the cost. So they can achieve pretty good savings on these. And when these companies do these root signing offerings, what you get to choose from is, are you doing server certificates, user certificates, or some combination? Now, the catch is, when you want to do root signing is, you now have to follow their certificate policies and certification practice statement. Okay. So they will define, you know, how often you need to be audited, how often you need to back up, how often do you need to publish revocation information? Um, does your CA require a hardware security module to protect the CA's private key and what FIPS level do you need? But for a lot of our companies, they've liked this solution because if they're using, let's say, a Microsoft PKI and they're taking advantage of auto-enrollment or maybe a registration authority such as the new Identity Lifecycle Manager 2007, they're able to do the same things they're doing, but they have a certificate that now chains to a commercial route. Great example of this, Microsoft Corporation. If you look at any of their SSL websites, they're actually issued by internal CAs that chain to the CyberTrust Root CA, the GTE CyberTrust Root CA. So they found a great savings in doing this, they felt that they needed the global, again, they needed global recognition of their certificate, but they wanted to have local management of the certificate. The one big rule, 
You can't become a certificate provider. You need to be doing this for your own company. You can't be issuing for other namespaces. Now, a third option, and this is a real quick and dirty one, but if you need to trust between another company and you both have internal PKIs, you can just exchange root CA certificates and add the other company's root CA to your trusted root store, and then all customer, all your clients will recognize certificates issued by your customer's PKI. Now, for people that aren't familiar with this, you know, are there any security implications with me providing it to my partner and then putting it on their root store? Well, there's no implications to you. Right. But there's big implications to me to take your root certificate and put it into my company's trusted root store. Because now I trust every certificate your company issues. I was thinking that's a pretty high level of trust between a couple of companies. Extreme, right? So that means if you, you know, let's say we only did it for client and server authentication. Uh But you have evil, you know, Joe Evil working, and he writes the best rootkit ever. (laughs) And signs it with a code signing certificate from your CA hierarchy. Sure. My users will recognize that signature and say, it's okay. Gotcha. So that's my one problem with just doing it. Yes, it's quick and dirty, but it's probably not a real feasible solution. So in some limited circumstances, maybe company A acquires company B, and they need to be able to trust each other's uh, authorities, then you have that capability, but... But but that's a situation where the trust is probably already established very high. Yeah, acquisitions and mergers that can work. Now, there is an offshoot to this that can work called cross-certification. Okay. Now, with cross-certification, what I can do is I can issue what's called a cross-CA certificate from my company's PKI to a specific CA in your company's PKI. Sure. And in there, I can define restrictions based on four different attributes of the certificate. One, I can say, I'm only going to trust, what, what's the path length? In other words, it's a basic constraint of, do I trust just the CA I issued this to? Do I trust the CA I issued it to and only direct subordinates? Or maybe two tiers below. I can put it as path length equals some number. If I say zero, I only trust that CA. If I say path length equals one, I trust that CA and only its direct subordinates. So that's one part. So I can really limit it. Like if I come to your company and I do a physical audit on this one CA, I can say, yes, I trust this CA. I will only trust certificates issued by it. Right. So but you're giving a level can, of granularity for it. Yeah, uh, exactly. Because, you know, I don't know if you have an office in Malibu, maybe I don't trust the way they manage their data center. <laughs> Now, the second thing is I can put in name constraints. So I can put in both includes and excludes. So I can say, I only trust it for your namespace for these name formats. So if it's going to be for server, I'll only put, you know, your DNS formats that I'm going to recognize. But I can also put in email formats, UPN formats, uh, distinguished name formats, etc. Even more importantly, I can put excluded ranges. And that's my favorite one to do because I'm going to say, you know what, I'm going to trust you, but I'm going to exclude all my company's name formats. So you can't issue a certificate for identity, identity.ca at all because that's my company's domain. You shouldn't be issuing certs to my users or my servers. Right. Now, the third one really keys in here 
we can put in application policies. So we can say, just like they do on root signing, we can say, I only trust this for client authentication and server authentication. So if that, you know, Joe Evil does his code signing certificate, when it comes across, it's going to be, sorry, this isn't trusted for this purpose. Gotcha. And then the last one, which gets real interesting, is we can now define certificate policies on each side and map those, transform them so we recognize them. So we could say, you know, my company has a certificate policy called managers. And to get a certificate with this policy, you must be a manager, you must be bonded, you must have shown federal photo ID to get the certificate. You've got a policy called executives that pretty much maps directly to that. Well, we can take the object identifiers that represent those two certificate policies and actually map them and say, my policy equals your policy. And these restrictions will actually go into the cross-CA certificate that I issue to your company. And now when we see your certificates, they will chain actually to my root CA, but they're restricted by my cross-CA certificate. Now I'm hearing a lot of different terminology that sounds very Active Directory-ish to me. It, it sounds Active Directory, but it's actually not directory-based at all. If anything, it's, it's really X509-based. It's all defined in RFC 3280. So I can do all of these things and really be agnostic to the fact of whether or not I have an Active Directory in place. It doesn't matter at all. You can do, in fact, we have done um, a, hyper, a hybrid version of cross-certification for several defense contractors in the U.S. They have set up what's called a bridge CA. And a bridge is a CA that sits unto itself and participants will cross-certify with the bridge. And then anybody who's a me- who shares membership in that bridge will trust other companies working in that bridge. Well, the specific bridge is called Certipath, and it was set up by the defense contractors so that they could trust each other for secure email, for client and server authentication. And it actually cross-certifies with another bridge called the U.S. Federal Bridge, which the U.S. Department of Defense hooks into. So they're now able to actually sign contracts and send them to the DOD, and they're recognized using internal certificates. That's that's pretty darn cool. And what's really the best part about it? Agnostic on platform. It does not matter what PKI you're using. This is not a Microsoft solution. This is RFC compliant, PKIX compliant solutions. And if you're interested, there's a whole white paper on it on the Microsoft website that myself, Dave Cross wrote. It does sound like we're at a new level now in using PKIs between organizations. Yeah, it's it's starting to, you know, these are options that, you know, we wrote about this three years ago, and we're starting to see it now come into fruition as more and more applications are becoming dependent on certificates. If there's anything to the listeners to warn about is, if you see an application saying you need certificates, if you see the line that says step one, set up a CA, please disregard that step and think about setting up a PKI for your application. So, you know, an infrastructure that deploys certificates for all applications in your company. The biggest mistake, I think, and we talked about this earlier, why did PKIs fail? I really feel it's because companies set up pockets of PKI. You know, we have a Cisco VPN 3000. Let's set up a CA for it. Oh, we have Exchange 2000 with Key Management Server. Let's set up another CA for this. And no central management of that is the issue. Exactly. And you're and there's no trust. It's just little pockets of PKI within your own company. Right. 
How are you going to do trust between companies when you can't even get it right within your own company? Absolutely. Well, Brian, I think we're about out of time, and I feel like we're just getting into this now. There's a lot of places to go. It's been a definitely been a fascinating discussion. One area for the viewers to go, Microsoft has some great white papers on PKI at www.microsoft.com slash PKI. Excellent. And a great reference for finding a lot of the white papers we've discussed today during the session. And Richard, I think, you know, I know a lot of questions have popped up in my mind, and I can only imagine the questions that are coming up in the minds of the people that are listening. So just a reminder, feel free to send questions. Uh, we can always drill down and hopefully ask our guests to come back sometime. Sure, Brian. We may bring you back for a question and answer show with all the email we get. That'd be perfect. And if anybody does have, if anybody does have any questions specific to PKI, please feel free to send them to me at brian.comar at identity.ca. That's ID. E-N-T-I-T dot C-A. And you can always email us at info at runasradio.com. And we'll read your emails on the air. Thanks very much, Brian. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.